Strict choir and congregation of all souls, Langham Place, with Name of All Majesty, they start us off. Annie Mason family is famous for being very successful musicians with very supportive parents. Their mother, Kadiatu, is of mixed Welsh and Sierra Leonean background. Michael Barclay talks to Caddy about her own love for music, particularly Mozart. I think Mozart speaks to all cultures and um, the children always say to me, what's the piece of music you'd want to hear if you were in a coma? And I say anything Mozart because I think Mozart speaks to children, speaks to adults, speaks to everyone. 
I know you've converted to Catholicism, Caddy, uh, from the Welsh Baptist faith in which you were brought up. So that music means a great deal to you spiritually. I think I yearned for the mystery, for something that's not said. And what the Welsh Baptist faith gives you is this wonderful sense of um, this all belongs to us and it's and everybody's equal, which is fantastic. But I miss that sense of the mysteriousness of the human imagination. And that's what I yearned for. Well, we've been talking about the tough times you experienced when you first came to Britain, but you were clearly ambitious. You went to Southampton University to study English. You completed a PhD and started out on an academic career. But by then, of course, you'd met your husband, Stuart, who has a Caribbean heritage. And then, like a good Catholic, you began having babies, lots of them, seven of them. Yes, I don't think I, we had the babies just because of our Catholicism. <laughs> we had the, the children because we have, both of us, actually, a huge sense of family. We both come from very warm, very large families. My husband's mother is one of 12. Um, his father was one of seven. So we both wanted to recreate that sense of the joyfulness of lots of children together. Your father actually uh, was one of 45 children, wasn't he, from 21 wives? Yes, yes. I mean, that's a, a very different cultural context. But yes. It's certainly not a Catholic one. <laughs> no, no, my grandfather was Muslim, so he had four wives at once. But yes, I mean, in Sierra Leone and, and among the Mende people, um, family is everything. It's central to everything. There's no such word as cousin. Everyone is your brother and sister. So a big extended family is very much part of life. If I uh, say that we're going to hear Shostakovich next, I expect many people might think, and you'll know why, that we're going to hear uh, a cello concerto, the first cello concerto. But in fact, it's a piano trio you've asked to hear, isn't it? Yes, and this is a piece that when the children were very little and only had just started learning their instruments, Stuart and I heard this piece of music and we dreamed that one day the older three would play this piece as a piano trio and it came to pass, it happened and that was a glorious moment You heard it on the soundtrack to a film? Yes, it was the film The Page Turner which we watched which at that time the children were not old enough to watch but we were immediately struck and we just sat there all the hair stood up on our heads and we thought that's the most incredible piece of music tune by Mozart that I know about is this one, the St. Michael Singers and Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated Lord to Thee. Take my life and let it be 
You've said that for your husband, Stuart, music became a way of creating a sense of achievement. And I wonder whether for you, music was a way of fighting against the prejudice you clearly experienced as a child. I think music is a wonderfully open field. I think anyone can do it and anyone can express anything through it. So it's something that's free from identity. And I think with music as well, you can go as far and as fast as you like. It's not bounded by what your teachers expect of you. It's something that you can develop as quickly as you like. How much prejudice did you actually encounter in the classical music world? It's, after all, notoriously white. I don't think the classical music world in itself is racist. I don't think classical musicians are racist. I think what it is is that children of, from diverse communities do not get access to that world. So it's a question of expense, it's a question of cultural barriers as well. I think they are often made to feel that it's not their world and it doesn't belong to them and they shouldn't do it. And so by the time it gets to conservatoire level, they are not the musicians there with the skills, with the background, with the education and the level in order to enter these conservatoires, which means that so many orchestras are 99% white or completely white, and also you see it reflected in audiences. Because I think if you're not introduced to it, if you're not made to feel that it's also part of your own culture, part of everybody's culture, you're not going to go to those concerts and be part of that audience. So I think it's not the question that a certain field is racist, it's a question of who has access. Do you think that your family now bears a bit of a burden, the burden of black representation in classical music? Uh, and is that a responsibility? Because as soon as somebody becomes a celebrity, we throw everything at them. Uh, and there's so obviously a sense that because Sheku is played so much, people might say, oh, well, good, we've ticked that box. Yes, that's a huge concern, um, the idea of tokenism. And Sheku and all the children are very passionate that they cannot be the only ones. So Sheku always says, OK, I've opened the door and stepped through. That door has to be kept open. I want other people to come through as well. And he's always so happy when a child, a black child, will come up to him at the end of a concert and say, look, I'm playing this music, I'm playing the cello or another instrument simply because I've seen you do it. And that's why I started. And he gets that a lot. And it's just a wonderful 
wonderful feeling and he takes that role very, very seriously. And I think um, it's very important that they do take that seriously because it's a, an ongoing struggle, an ongoing battle. Samuel Coleridge-Taylor next, a pioneering composer in many ways, the kind of ways we've been talking about. Uh, and I think we're going to hear three of your children playing it. Yes, this will be Isaiah on the piano, Brimer on the violin and Sheku on the cello. So it's a piece that I absolutely adore. And what I love about this piece is you can hear all their personalities and it's something that they arranged themselves. And so it has all their own feeling in it. And for me, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor was a composer who I loved as a child. I actually had his poster on my wall. And the reason I loved him was because his father was also Sierra Leonean and he was mixed race. And his music just spoke to me. And the piece, of course, Deep River from the black slave tradition in the United States is something that means a lot to the children with their heritage in the slave histories of the Caribbean and this is a piece which for me is on two levels it's a piece about freedom and it's also a piece about dying and going back to Africa which is home
Samuel Coleridge Taylor's Deep River, and we heard three of your older children there, the Kane Mason Trio, cellist Sheku, pianist Isatar, and violinist Brymar, performing their own arrangement of the original piano version. Do they often get hold of bits of music and arrange it for the instruments that they've got available? Yes, and they've always done that since they were very small. And it's the thing that when, once they finish their practice, what they have to do for their teachers, then they get together and they jam and they do their own arrangements and it's very spontaneous and they've always done it. But let's get back to music and it's Laura's story and one word title, Indescribable. <laughs> Oh, 
guide has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's thoughts on Psalm 4. It's followed by a poem, In the Stillness, by Katrina Shepherd, set to music by Sally Beamish, and sung by the Pembroke College Girls Choir and the Chapel Choir of Pembroke College, Cambridge, conducted by Anna Lapwood. A response to Psalm 4. Till troubles cease and only joys remain, take refuge in the shelter of his love, who hears your call and feels with you your pain, who does not keep his distance high above, but brings his light into your little room, nestles and settles with you like the dove in its familiar dovecot. From the womb of Mary to her house in Nazareth, from the upper chamber to the empty tomb, he comes to share with you your every breath and to commune with you. To every heart that opens to him, he will bring new birth. For every ending, offer a new start. Lie down in peace and trust and take your rest safe in the love of one who'll never part. just heard the song in the stillness now here are kingsway's voices of worship with be still
a Celtic song now with Joanne Hogg and Here Is Love. has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. Today, Adrian talks about being good enough. Am I good enough? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he went out to the porch, another serving girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. 
After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are also one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to curse, and he swore an oath, I do not know the man. At that moment the cock crowed. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said, Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and wept bitterly. I wept a little just now when I read that passage for the umpteenth time. There were two reasons for the tears. First, I was suddenly wearily conscious of how many times I have denied Jesus since I responded to the story of the thief on the cross 28 years ago. In my own way, I have observed from outer courtyards, retreated to porches, and wildly protested my non-involvement. This isn't surprising because I'm a very flawed human being, and that leads to the second reason for my tears. I know now that the only thing I can offer God is myself, and he will gladly, smilingly welcome that self, but the child in me wanted so much to be good enough. I find it painfully difficult to accept that God called me in the full knowledge that I was bound to let him down and betray him at one time or another. How hard it is for people as proud as many of us are to be known to such a depth, to feel all our human defences and tricks and pretences being gradually stripped away and to see the naked poverty that is our real condition. We mourn for our spurious human dignity, even as we plead for it to be removed. Separated by 2,000 years and nothing at all, Peter and I, and many others, go out and weep bitterly together because we fail our master and because he always knew that we would. Come and meet Jesus. You are standing alone, outside the door of a huge, dark, old traditional church, somewhere in the depths of East Anglia, perhaps. It's a weekday evening in late autumn. Dusk has fallen, and it seems most unlikely that the church will have been left unlocked and vulnerable in such a desolate area. But a cold November wind is whistling through the poorly tended graveyard, so you decide it might be worth a try. To your surprise, both the outer and inner doors are unlocked, and you're able to pass easily, if rather timidly, to the inside of the building, shutting the heavy old door carefully behind you as you go. You're a little worried that someone may be doing something important inside. They might be annoyed by your intrusion. There is someone there. Behind the altar rail, far away at the opposite end of the church, Lit by a large candle on either side of him, a man is facing you, waiting quietly. Somehow you know it's Jesus, and that he wants to give communion to you with his own hands. You very nearly give in to the temptation to escape. It would be so easy to pull the studded oak door open and run through the porch into the cold night. Instead, you walk towards the altar with your head bowed, frightened to meet his steady gaze because, because. You kneel at the rail and wait, still looking at the floor. A moment later you become aware 
that he has knelt too. His hand is gently lifting your chin until you can't help looking straight into his eyes. He speaks softly to you. What does he say? We'll leave you with Trish Morgan at Spring Harvest with Lord, I Come to You. I've come to you.